There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries. Listener discretion is advised. Every year that passes by is another year that Debbie Sue Williamson's case goes unsolved. She was just very caring towards me Um, because of our age difference. She was more like a mother towards me. And I knew something was wrong. I walked on the side of her car, and that's where she was, and I tripped right over. Murder case gone cold for nearly 50 years has piqued the interest of a pair of investigators determined to finally solve it. On August 24, 1975, 18-year-old newlywed Debbie Sue Williamson was murdered in her own backyard. My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University an Army veteran, and a licensed private investigator. My partner in crime solving is George Jared. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, Jen and I have helped solve other cold cases by harnessing the power of social media and crowdsourcing along with other investigative tactics. We plan to do the same for the family of Deborah Sue Williamson. This isn't going to be like the majority of true crime podcasts. We're going to take you along on our investigative journey so you can experience what it's really like to try and solve a cold case. This season of Break the Case actually began at CrimeCon 2021. CrimeCon is the largest true crime conference in the world, attended not only by true crime fans, but also law enforcement and forensics professionals, as well as family members seeking justice for their loved ones. George and I were speakers at the conference, presenting about our part in the investigation into the murder of Rebecca Gould who was killed in Arkansas in 2004. A suspect was arrested in that case just a few months prior to CrimeCon. Miranda, one of our super sleuth team members who helped us on Rebecca's case, attended CrimeCon with us and met Liz Flatt, Debbie's sister. She was immediately intrigued with the case and all the work Liz had done on it and brought it to me and George for consideration. Miranda and I spoke at length. We did some initial research and confirmed that Liz had a lot of documents and information related to the case. So I decided to call George to see what he thought of taking this on. Hey, Jen, what's going on? George, I think I found our next case. Really? I think so. Okay, remember at CrimeCon in June, Miranda mentioned the case of Debbie Williamson? Yeah. Okay, so she's the one who was killed in 1975 in Lubbock, Texas. And Miranda got in touch with Debbie's sister, Liz, who wants to talk with us about the case. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean... We talked to several people at CrimeCon, and uh, every case that was brought to us, I mean, it's harrowing. You know, you feel so awful for the, the family members, but without certain elements in place, it just makes it that much harder. And, you know, you and I obviously have careers that don't involve just this, so we have to find a way to spend our time the best way we can. And um, buy-in from the family and having some access. Let me ask you this, and you may not know it yet, 
Has there been any discussions with the Lubbock Police Department as far as if they might want to be involved or if they're going to be cooperative with us? Do we know anything about that at this point? The only thing I know or understand is that Liz has met with them on several occasions over the past few years, but I don't know yet the outcome of those meetings. Okay, I mean... Obviously, that's not a deal breaker for us. We've we've dealt with uncooperative yeah. police agencies before, so we've been to that rodeo before and rode that ride. Whatever analogy you want to use. You want me to tell you a little bit about the case? Yeah, yeah. I remember a few details when we talked about it, but go ahead and give me the rundown. I think it's going to catch your attention. So Debbie was killed on August 24th, 1975. It was a Sunday evening, okay. and she was stabbed 17 times outside the back door of her home. Well, not exactly the back door. It appears she was attacked in the carport near the back door, but the back door of the house was found standing open. So it seems like some sort of confrontation started there, maybe as Debbie was exiting the house to leave. Supposedly, she'd made plans to go to her husband's place of work, and her husband's name is Doug. He worked at a place called the Pizza Inn, which was about five minutes away, but she never showed up that evening. And apparently he called her several times throughout the night, never got an answer at the home. And after the restaurant closed late that night, he drove home and he was actually the one who found her, which is really, really tragic. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awful. He found her laying by the back step of their home. That's awful. Yeah. So uh, one really strange detail is that she was attacked in the carport, but her body was dragged to the back step. What do you think about that? I mean. Obviously, if you're moving a body, the first reason is is you're trying to conceal it, maybe. Mm -hmm. There could be some other reason why you would want to put that body in that particular spot that's more of a deep psychological reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are a couple of things that first come to mind. How many times was she stabbed? Do we know? I think 17, in the front and the back. Oh, wow. So this was a pretty vicious struggle then. Yeah. And not only was her body moved, the killer pushed her shirt and bra up and pulled her pants and underwear down. Oh, so she was sexually assaulted? No, it doesn't appear so. They actually did a pretty thorough job at autopsy examining for signs of sexual assault, but there was no sign of rape. Oh, wow. Well, I'm definitely intrigued by this case. Cool, me too. I'm going to set up a meeting with us and Liz and see if we can chase this down. When I first heard about Debbie's case and the lack of justice or even progress, I knew this was the case for us. In the past, we'd have experienced a complete lack of cooperation from law enforcement, and if that turned out to be the situation in Debbie's case, well, we don't care. We refuse to be deterred because every victim deserves justice. I got in touch with Liz, Debbie's sister, to gather as much information as we could about Debbie's murder and start dissecting the case. Liz has spent the last four years conducting her own investigation into Debbie's murder, but before I learned about her work, I wanted to hear more about who Debbie was as a person. Good morning, Liz. How are you? Good morning, Jen. I'm doing good. What I want to start with is some of your memories or recollections of when you and Debbie lived together with your parents. Did you guys hang out together at all? Not a whole lot at that time. Being the little pesty sister, I always wanted to be with her. But not a great deal at that time as far as hanging out. We were 10 years apart. She worked a lot, and so between that and school, she was very, very busy. I remember she'd take me to school in the mornings. She was just very caring towards me. Um, Because of our age difference, she was more like a mother towards me when we were around each other. How would you characterize her as a person in general? 
She was a Christian. She was very compassionate. She cared about other people a great deal. Um, she was very nice, a really good person inside and out. What do you remember about her and Doug together as a couple? I remember them being silly. Doug smiled a lot, and Debbie was very giddy. When he was around, she just lit up. I mean, you could tell she just was very, very much in love with him. So you were a flower girl in her wedding, right? Yes, I was. What can you tell us about their wedding? On her wedding, I remember it just being a very happy day. I remember feeling that I had the most important role of the whole wedding, and I was so proud to be a part of it and to be with her. I remember her just being just so happy. That was in June of 1975. What can you remember about the next couple months over that summer? Did you get to spend some time with Debbie and Doug? Yes, I spent a lot of time with them. Right after they got married and back from their honeymoon, they ended up moving into Doug's parents' home. They currently weren't living in it at that time, and so they moved in there. I spent a lot of time with Debbie that summer. I was with her most of the summer. I talked to Liz for a while about her childhood and how much Debbie's murder tainted her memories of their time together. I asked her what she could remember about the night of Debbie's murder. The day she was murdered, we ended up going and picking up Debbie to go eat at Pizza Inn, which was me, my mom, and my dad. And we went and picked her up, and we went to Pizza Inn for dinner. I have very little memory of that as far as what we did. I do remember driving back to her house, which we dropped her off around 8.30. When we got there, I initially was going to stay the night with her, and my mother had uh, said, no, I cannot. She had changed her mind, and I was very upset about that, and I was pouting profusely. And then Mother went into the house. Um, Debbie wanted to show her her wedding dress that she had gotten back from the cleaners. And me and Dad remained in the car. She came out, and then we went home. The last thing I remember was I was mad because I wasn't staying the night. Liz's recollection of the night of Debbie's murder was just the beginning. We knew we had to talk to the person who found her, her husband of less than three months, Doug Williamson. I asked Doug to recall what he could about the night of August 24th, 1975. Well, I'm not exactly sure what time I got to pizza in. I think it was probably around 4.35 o'clock that I got to pizza in. Right after church, we just got really, really busy. And Debbie and her mom and dad and stepdaughter, Liz, came in and ate supper. Before they left, she told me that she would come back up there and help me with inventory because I had inventory that night. Well, she said she wanted to bring her proofs up there to show the girls her wedding pictures. And I think that's the reason she had them with her. I tried to call her to find out when she was going to be there, and I didn't get an answer. And then about 
10 o'clock, I tried again. I, I tried just about every hour on the hour. And meanwhile, we were really, really, really busy. And so I tried to call her up until we closed. And then when all of the people were out of Pizza Inn, I locked the door and I drove out to the house and pulled into the carport. And I immediately noticed that the back door was open. I walked between the two vehicles and when I turned the corner, noticed Debbie laying by the step. There was very little light, but it was light enough that I could see Debbie. And also the back door was open and the utility room light was on. So that added a little bit more light. So I did not know, honestly, who was there, if they might be in the house. And I don't know why I jumped in the rig. I guess it jumped in my vehicle and took off with back to Pizza Inn. And it's probably because I felt like there might be somebody in the house. And so I just got in my rig and drove back to Pizza Inn when I called the police. And after I talked to the police, then I called Bob and Joyce. Bob and Joyce Lemons were Debbie's parents, and unfortunately, they have both passed away. However, Liz has some very vivid memories of that night based on what her parents conveyed to her. We asked her to share what she could remember. I think it was around one-ish. Prior to that, Doug had called because he wasn't able to reach Debbie on the phone to see if she might have been at our house. Then around one o'clock or so, Doug had called and told my parents something had happened to Debbie. And they just jumped in the car and went to her house, which wasn't that far. My understanding is he, uh, he ran towards the back door and there was two detectives they were trying to stop him from going any further into the carport, and he just plowed him down and uh, forced himself to get there and then fell to his knees and said, oh, my God, it's true. And where was your mom at this point? She had uh, parked the car and then was going towards the house, and the cops caught her before she got too close. But she did see Debbie, and she started falling apart. And then they got her into the back of a police car. What do you remember about finding out after she was murdered? Early that morning on August 25th, it was a Monday, and it was real early. My dad had brought my sister Pam in to my bedroom. He was waking me up, and he was kneeling beside my bed. So when I woke up, I saw Pam in there, him kneeling at my bed, and Doug at the foot of my bed. He was saying he had something to tell us, and he was struggling to talk. And he told us Debbie had been murdered. And I remember looking at Doug, and he was just like a statue. He was just like he was frozen. My dad was saying, she's gone, she's gone. I heard what he was saying, but it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, 
we'd just taken Debbie back home. She's home. I understood what he was saying, but it just wasn't real to me. And I think a lot of that was my age. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. Debbie's murder made the newspaper every day for several weeks and created a lot of fear amongst women in the community. At the time of Debbie's murder, the location of her home was considered remote, though there were a handful of neighbors in the general area. Police canvassed the neighborhood, but no one reported hearing or seeing anything out of the ordinary around the time of the murder. On the night of Debbie's murder, police began their investigation by collecting evidence, taking crime scene photographs, and interviewing Debbie's family members. Doug recalls being questioned soon after the murder. After they interviewed me the first time, which was probably the next day after the, the murder occurred, and I talked to the police again, and they wanted me to take polygraph test. And did you take it? I did take the polygraph test, and they did tell me that all of the questions that they gave me turned out really well, but there was only one question that did not show up as a true statement, and that was, did I kill Debbie? But I would have had to have known all of these other questions, like where's the knife, where's the photo albums, where's the purse, and all that. I would have had to have lied about all that, Correct. which I didn't. So. That was the only question that I actually failed. They said that's understandable. They did administer a second polygraph test, and the results were the same except for the one question. Gotcha. And so they did not feel that you had any involvement, I guess. They didn't make any accusations toward you? No, they did not. Okay. Do you think that was the last time that you went in and spoke with police about it? That was the last time that I talked to the police. And that was 1975, 46 years ago. Right. Wow. What are your thoughts on what's been done about Debbie's case by police over the years? Well, my thought is, is that I think they basically could not prove anything on anybody and they just quit working on the case. And of course, with the technology that they've got today, I think that if they would have all that evidence tested, I think it could be solved very easily. The case went cold almost immediately. Almost a decade went by and there were no developments in Debbie's case until a man confessed to her murder along with nearly 600 others. When police told Bob and Joyce who might have killed their daughter, they were immediately skeptical. A detective in Lubbock told us that the case had been solved, that Henry Lucas had done the crime. We did not believe this. He could not have done this. How can you even accept this? We were mad. 
it didn't matter that it wasn't the person who killed Debbie. They were going to get it off the books. On the next episode of Break the Case, we'll discuss the false confession that convinced police they found Debbie's killer, but ultimately railroaded the entire case. Debbie's parents were forced to spend the next year at more than $100,000 trying to prove to police that they had the wrong man. Meanwhile, the actual killer was still out there and police weren't even looking. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into who really killed Debbie Sue Williamson. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Deborah Sue Williamson. On this season of Break the Case. The most logical thing that I can think of is somebody tried to shame her. I feel like it's somebody that both of us knew, maybe somebody that she had dated once upon a time. There is apparently multiple murders that happen on a regular basis in Lubbock. And I feel so, so sorry for those families. But she needs to be put first for once. Please put her case first. At the light, turn right onto 82nd Street. Then the destination is on your left. So look how dark that is. You can't see a thing. Yeah, and think about all the um, unnatural light that yeah. exists now. Just that's like exactly in the air, so. Yeah, she died right there. In this night. Yeah, right now. Right about now. The other thing is, as the attack's going on here, her attacker can't see much either. No. No, that's exactly right. So that could also be part of the distribution of, of the, the different wounds because right. they're just aimlessly stabbing. I cannot stop looking at this case. And there's probably some people at the AJ, the Avalanche Journal, that think I'm crazy but I can't give up this case until it's solved. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist, George Jared. Senior producers, Leachin Kranick and Andy Crow, with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Case Breakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.